0: Again, welcome. Welcome from me. Uh, I'm, as I said, I'm Philip. I'm part of Simon's uh, leadership team. He's having a well-deserved holiday at the moment, and uh, I'm going to be speaking from the Bible this morning. Um, Let me just pray before we start. It's just good to pray and and, uh, ask God to speak to us, isn't it? So, Lord God, we do ask that you would do exactly that. Would you speak to us through your word this morning? I pray you'd really help me to be clear and accurate and truthful. I pray you'd help us to receive what you would say this morning and to be changed. As a result, to be more like you, Jesus. That's our heart, is to be changed, to be more and more like you. I pray wherever we're at this morning, whatever morning we've had, whatever week we've had, the highest of heights or the lowest of lows, God, come and meet us this morning, I pray. Amen. So, as Christy mentioned, our life group's take a little break for a while, and as such, we're going to take a break from our current preaching series on Acts take a little pause from that for five weeks, and we're going to look at a new book in the Bible called Jonah. So we're going to do a new little mini-series on the book of Jonah. If you're not sure where Jonah is, Jonah is like three-quarters of the way through your Bible towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, It's only two pages, so it could be a mission to find, if you have a church Bible, it's on page 774. And that's what we're going to be looking at today and for these next four weeks. Our kids also are going to be starting Jonah as well in uh, in kids' work next week. They're going to be following along with us so you parents can enjoy being one step ahead of your kids, which I'm sure you always are. Anyway, when my mum was asked uh, a while ago what she remembered about me as a child, she said the infamous phrase, she said, very sweet and very rebellious. Was the phrase that she used, which has kind of lived in our family ever since. And I don't know about the sweet bit, but I think there was certainly enough evidence for the rebellious bit. And I remember one on one occasion when I was just six years old, we were at a beach in Devon, um, just kind of enjoying the the summer's day on a beach in Devon. And like the sweet little boy I was, I was just paddling away in the in in the sea at at the front of the thing, minding my own business. But like the rebellious little boy I was, I was planning on disobeying what I'd just been told. And you see, my dad had just explained to me, Philip, I don't want you to swim in a certain part of the beach. Why? Because the sand at that part, Philip, just shelves away very steeply, and you'll suddenly find that the sea sea is much deeper than you realise. So don't go and swim over there, please. I was very sweet, I was also very rebellious, so I thought I'll know exactly what I'll do. I'll disobey his instructions and I'll go and explore why this part of the sea is apparently so dangerous. So there I was, just very sweetly paddling around, but starting to inch my way out in towards the sea, thinking, yeah, it can't be that bad, surely. What's my dad talking about? He doesn't know what he's talking about. It'll be fine. Sure enough. The sand did shelve away very dramatically. And this little six-year-old suddenly... they you know, had that feeling as a child? There's, there's nothing beneath your feet. You can't touch the ground. And you start to sink a little bit. And I remember vividly like, looking out and the water was coming up. And he's starting he to choke a little bit. I think I was... I don't know whether I was actually drowning or whether I was just panicking. I don't know. But my memory is like really is quite seared. Or the, the memory is seared on my memory to some extent. And then as I kind of looked across the top of the river and it was getting in my mouth or the sea, sorry, I saw my dad clock what was happening and leap up in Baywatch style, grab his red, you know, one of his red... F- and then sprint across the beach like he went straight through someone's picnic, through a windbreaker, made like a, a direct line to me. He, he dived in. I remember his elbow coming under my chin and he kind of paddled me out and he rescued me and I kind of conked out in a tearful, wet heap. I remember it really vividly. And what's more, the next day, my dad, in typical fashion, he wasn't going to let me kind of cower on the sand, afraid of the sea. And none of that, straight back in the sea, you're going to learn how to swim. And he taught me much more how to swim. I remember, the next day, straight back in, we're not going to let this beat you. You're going to have a much more of a hope and a future for swimming. And I think that picture, in some ways, is a little picture of the gospel. It's a little picture of the gospel. If you're new to church or new to the gospel, that's the key message. That God loved us far too much to leave us just languishing in the results of our rebellion. He came and intervened. He came and rescued. He came and brought us back to life. And he doesn't just leave us to get on with life. He teaches us. He walks life with us. There's grace and mercy not just in the rescue, but in abundance afterwards. It's a picture of the gospel. And really, the book of Jonah is a very similar picture. It's a very similar picture of the gospel of God pursuing and rescuing a rebel. And so we've called this series Hope for Rebels. We've called this series Hope for Rebels. And I'm going to read chapter one to you this morning. And we'll unpack the specifics of how God gives hope to rebels. So, chapter one. Now. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it, and went to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the series is called Hope for Rebels. And this morning I've entitled it God Pursues and Rescues Rebels. God Pursues and Rescues Rebels. Now, before we launch into this precise story itself, the actual chapter, and you start thinking about large fish and We just need to understand where we are, I think, we need to understand where we are in history. So we need a very short little history lesson, otherwise we just kind of jump into the middle of history and we don't really know where we are. So here we go. I'm sure you all know that throughout history there have been superpowers, haven't there? Superpowers have come and gone, dominating different parts of the the globe, different parts of different continents, and I guess today is no different. Different superpowers are dominating today. And the Israelites had always been surrounded by various superpowers. I guess the Egyptians were the first ones they'd had to battle with. Later on it was the Babylonians, and then in Jesus' time it was the Romans. But in this particular moment of history, the Egyptians have actually made way for the Assyrians. So, between 9th and 7th century BC, the Assyrians are the dominant power in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean. And in fact, shortly after Jonah's time, the Assyrians actually enslaved the Israelite nation. And Nineveh, it's basically the capital city of Assyria. Nineveh is not around today, but we think it was in somewhere like modern day Iran or Iraq, somewhere in that, uh, on that border we think Nineveh was. Nineveh was effectively the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh was an enormous city at that time. Enormous for its time. Population was in the hundreds of thousands rather than the tens of thousands. It had a huge 60 mile wall around the outside of the city. The walls are 50 feet high. They were so thick, apparently you could ride three chariots abreast across the top. It was a very, very imposing, impregnable city within the midst of an impregnable, imposing empire. And the people within Nineveh, the Assyrians themselves, were equally imposing they were not known for being uh, gentle, tolerant, postmodern sort of Kingstonians. These guys are serious warriors. They are fearsome and known for their fearsome oppression and brutality, really. They were renowned, the Assyrians, for their brutality and their oppression. Um, I used to to be a teacher of history and I remember looking at this kind of era one time and one little boy, you know little boys just love the violence of history. There's something just slightly weird about how much little boys just love the blood and the guts. And one little boy found out about the Assyrian Empire and he told me, uh, he's only 12 so let's say he might be right. He said the Assyrians invented a form of execution where they would bury you up to your neck in the ground in the sand in the Middle East and just wait for you to be frazzled by the Middle Eastern midday sun. He thought it was great. I think we're all equally appalled. My point being, the Assyrians were a fairly brutal people. So that's Nineveh, and that's Assyria. What about Jonah? How does he fit into this place? How does he fit into this place in history? Well, um, another book in the Old Testament, a book called One Kings, tells us about Jonah. It actually mentions Jonah. It tells us that Jonah lived in the first half of the 8th century B.C., so in the midst of this time where Assyria is so threatening and dominant. It tells us that Jonah was a prophet, that somebody who hears from God and speaks on behalf of God to the Jewish nation. And it also tells us that he was probably extremely well regarded, because we learn from 1 Kings that Jonah had accurately prophesied something already. Jonah had accurately prophesied that despite Israel having a pretty terrible king, God, in his mercy and his grace, would secure the Israeli borders against the Assyrian Empire and actually, temporarily, push them back. And sure enough, it happened. And so Jonah was really fated, not just for the accuracy of his prophecy, but also for its, uh, for its joy, for the goodness of it. Often, Old Testament prophets had pretty unpalatable prophecies to give. Jonah had a very palatable, popular prophecy to give, and he was well regarded as a result. For Jonah, as a prophet of God, as a spokesperson of God, would have carried with him closely the promise of God to protect his nation against his enemies. That is deep in the Jewish DNA. God is our God. Yes, he will bless the nations of the earth, but he will also protect us against our enemies. They carry that promise and that reality deep in their, if you like, racial and religious DNA. And it's into this context, this historical context of the threat of Nineveh. And God's protection of his people, the Israelites, that Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, to go to the capital city of the threatening Assyrians and call them to repent and to turn to the one true God, the God of Israel. It so is suddenly a much less palatable message that Jonah has been given. He's not used to this. I don't really blame him, to be honest with you. Can you imagine it was 1941? And the German Nazi German Empire is at the height of its power and threat. You can imagine kind of being parachuted into Berlin and told to go and find the sort of senior SS guards and say, I really think you ought to repent and turn from your ways." It would be a pretty terrifying, unpalatable, unpopular mission. And Jonah's response, therefore, I don't think is that surprising. Look at his response in verse 3. What does he do? He runs. (laughs) He just runs for it rather than going from Israel to Nineveh, which would have been about kind of 600 miles northeast into Iran or Iraq. Instead of doing that, he goes about 2000 miles west. He just legs it. Jonah effectively resigns. You can see the image behind me here. That's Jonah's option. Northeast, a few hundred miles to Nineveh, no thanks very much. On a boat, 2,000 miles, effectively to the end of the known world at that time. So he goes as far as he can. Jonah resigns. I'm out. I'm not a prophet. The leader becomes a rebel. The leader becomes a rebel. So, three things in our time this morning. We've already said this morning that there is hope for rebels. God is a God who gives hope for rebels. How does he do that? How does God bring hope to rebels? First of all, rebels, we need to find out, run. Rebels tend to run. But secondly, rebels sometimes need a storm. And thirdly, rebels always need a rescuer. So, number one, rebels run. Jonah runs. He has no desire to carry God's message to Nineveh, none at all. We've already said he is understandably scared at bringing a message of repentance to the fierce enemies of Israel. But he's also not just appalled by the physical threat that he might face, he's appalled by something else far more subtle. And if we um, sabotage Simon's sermon in three weeks and sneak ahead to chapter 4, it tells us that Jonah had another, much more subtle reason for not wanting to go to Nineveh. He's not just appalled by the prospect of the physical threat upon his life, he's actually appalled at the prospect of the Ninevites repenting. He can't bear the thought they might actually repent. They might actually receive the forgiveness and the goodness and the grace of God. He says so in chapter 4. He doesn't want God to forgive them. He hates them. And I can understand why to an extent. A while ago, I remember speaking to a World War II uh, veteran who came into the school that I was teaching and he spoke wonderfully and helpfully and movingly and accurately and so on. But he did have a genuine bitterness that he still harboured towards the German nation some 50, 60 years on. Not unreasonably, you might argue, in some cases. But there was still a lingering resentment towards what the German nation had put him through all those years ago. And Jonah is living in the midst of that. It's like he's living in World War II in some respects. The Assyrians are a, a present threat my point, I suppose, so far is this. Sometimes God asks us to love people who are difficult to love. Jonah has no desire to go and love these people. No desire to see them receive the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Um, I'm sure all of you are so thrilled to know the cricket season is fast upon us. I know that is there's just talk rife amongst the church. The excitement is almost uh, indescribable. So I, I play for a cricket team in, in the borough of Kingston. We'll be starting again soon this, this, uh, this year. And uh, there's a couple of guys in my team who, uh, yeah, we've got quite a decent team, quite a good bunch of mates already, and, and quite a competitive side. And there's two guys that spring to mind, I was thinking about this. And one guy, uh, neither, neither of them are uh, Christians, one guy is just the, the loveliest, nicest fellow you could wish to meet. Interesting, charming, polite, a good cricketer, which kind of helps as well. But we have interesting discussions about like, life and the gospel and what church is and what he thinks and what I think. Got a lovely wife, lovely little kids. Delightful guy. Another fella in my team who is none of those things. <laughs> really hard work. Pretty rude, if I'm honest. Often quite offensive. Not an easy teammate to be around. Just thoroughly hard work. The kind of guy who, frankly, I would just rather avoid through the day. We'll play our match. You do your thing. I'll do my thing and let's be done. What I've discovered with the second guy is that there's no point me just gritting my fist, clenching my fist and gritting my teeth and trying really hard to bring something of God's love and grace to the second guy. It just doesn't really work. It works for a little bit, then it just fades. What I know, what I've gradually learned is for me to demonstrate the the grace and the love of God, I need to continually experience the grace and the love of God. Continually. It has to flow through me if it's ever going to come out of me. And I wonder this morning, do you have a Ninevite in your life? Do you have a Ninevite in your life? Not an axe-wielding, mass-murdering warrior, but just someone who's hard to love. Someone who, if you're honest, when you see them, you just would rather get on a boat to Tarshish and go the other way. Do you have a Ninevite in your life? Might be a Christian, might be a non-Christian. And actually, it's somebody you think, do you know what, I think God might be calling me to do a bit more than just go the other way. But it's hard. It's really hard. There's maybe resentment and frustration and hurt all kind of bubbled up. Do you have a Ninevite in your life? Second question, do you have a Nineveh? Do you have a Nineveh? And by that, I don't really mean a place that you should be going that you've not gone. What I mean more is an area of your life that maybe God is calling you on. Something you're running from, perhaps. So much less about a specific Nineveh moment. You must go here and you haven't. I think much more about Nineveh being a place that God is calling us to be, to look like, to take seriously. And explain more. I think often as Christians, my observation is we can think that to discern the will of God is to find out some very, very complex code, then crack it, and then we'll discern, decipher this very, very specific thing. I will go here, live there, live in that neighbourhood, marry this person, do these specific things. And and God speaks like that sometimes, specifically. He did to Jonah. But God also speaks regularly through Scripture all the time about how he wants us to live. His will is often very, very clear in that respect. For example, Jesus is calling us consistently to mirror him, to reflect him. And we can do that. We can mirror him by being like him and giving generously. We can mirror him and be like him by committing to his church fully. We can mirror him and be like him by loving our community of Kingston. We can mirror him and be like him by honouring him with our body. So Nineveh, I think, in this setting, in this sense, is much less about a specific place to go to and more about an area of our life that we just don't really want to let God in on. See, don't miss the fact, King's Church, that Jonah was a believer And we can be believers just like Jonah, religious leaders, just like Jonah, and run from a Nineveh, an area, a calling, and a way in which God wants us to live. So don't make it too dramatic. It doesn't have to be this enormous thing. It can just be an area of our life where, like Jonah, we're still a believer in God, but we just don't want anything to do with him on that area. Jonah did not want to get involved in evangelism to difficult people. That might be your Nineveh. Or it might be something else, as God speaks to you this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, or you're not sure if you're a Christian this morning. I wonder whether for you the issue is less about Nineveh and more about Tarshish. You see, what Jonah is also doing is basically saying, I'm going to go off and run this bit of my life my way. That's what he's saying, Really? as he gets on the boat and goes as far away as he can, he's basically saying, I want to go off and run my life my way. I want to go and forge an identity for myself that is apart from God's. And when we're not a Christian yet, that's kind of what we do, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. We choose to run our life our way and not God's way. So whether you're a Christian rebel, like Jonah, refusing to go to Nineveh, or a non-Christian rebel, Living your life your way on a ship to Tarshish. Hear me me now. What we don't need, what we don't need, surely, is for God to simply let us carry on. I had a Muslim friend of mine and uh, met another friend of his just this week. And I think Islam is, is in common with a number of other religions, as we were talking. When really, as far as I can tell, in other religions, God simply observes us in our plight. He observes us in our plight and maybe recommends some means or some ways by which we might be able to fix ourselves or earn his pleasure. We don't need that. I don't need a God who just watches me, who just gives me tips and advice and waits for me to better myself. Rebels like me need a God that intervenes, need a God that pursues, need a God that goes after us. And second point this morning, what we sometimes need is for God to send a storm. Rebels sometimes need a storm. Verse 4. God sends a great wind and a mighty tempest. Sounds a pretty terrifying storm. The sailors are in total panic. Cargo is being launched over the sides. Prayers are being said to whichever God might listen. It sounds absolute chaos. Excuse me. Now notice, these sailors who are panicking, praying, throwing things overboard, doing anything, these are tough guys. You don't sail ships back and forth across the Mediterranean, especially in this era of history, without being a tough, hardened fella. Used to storms, used to sailing these parts of the, of the Mediterranean. These are tough guys. These are not like, I don't know if you saw the news this week, the two guys in Essex who built their own little boat for £9, DIY boat, um, made of where is it here? Made of, made of various like uh, coat hangers and loft insulation and a bit of sealant. Like they just built their own boat and went sailing off the coast of Essex, and guess what, their boat started to sink and they had to get rescued. They weren't even wearing a lifeguard. It was amazing. That, this is not them. These are seriously tough, experienced, strong sailors. And they are panicking. They are terrified. Can you imagine the scene? It must have been terrifying. Like black clouds, horizontal rain, the waves lashing across the side of the boat, the boat getting deeper and deeper into the sea, which is why they're throwing all the cargo overboard. You probably couldn't hear each other hardly because of the sound of the wind and the rain and the waves. It must have been an absolutely terrifying scene. And Jonah's having a kip, <laughs> we're told. Jonah is asleep. How is that possible? How is Jonah sleeping during something like this? I don't really know the practical, literal answer, if you like. But I do know this can happen when we run from God. When we run from God, either totally or partially, we can sometimes become immune to his pursuit of us. Jonah must be in some kind of stupor, I think. Otherwise, how can he ignore the level of this storm? Sometimes we can almost become slightly immune to God's pursuit of us when we're running from him, even if it's just in one area. It's Ironic to me that in verse six, it's the unbelieving sailor, the non-Christian captain, for want of a better phrase. He's the one who has to wake up the believing Jonah. And he kind of mirrors what God had originally said to Jonah in verse six. The sailor says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Now, I just kind of wonder whether he might have said something else as well at that moment. But the Bible tells us he called him a sleeper. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. The storm continues to rage. God uses the sailor superstition to make it clear that Jonah's rebellion is uh, the cause of the storm. Notice in verse 9 how Jonah acknowledges that his God is the God who made the sea. His God is the one that is behind this. Sometimes, I think, God sends storms to get our attention. And hear me, that's not an act of cruelty on his behalf. It's an act of mercy. I think it would have been cruelty, would it not, to have let Jonah disappear? Just to let him go to Tarshish. That would have been cruelty from God. God in his mercy pursues Jonah with a storm. God, you know, our God is so loving and so merciful that he doesn't ignore us, but he pursues us in order to draw us into his loving embrace and his magnificent purposes. And sometimes, sometimes he does it with a storm. God does great work in storms. Some of you can nod through gritted teeth or a few scars. You can nod that God can do great work in storms, even storms of our own making, like Jonas. Like, man, I think of some of the storms that I have been in, that I have created myself. have <laughs> effectively been through my own foolishness, my own disobedience, my own rebellion. And Every single time, often looking back, <laughs> I can see, I can detect God doing good things in storms. Even the ones that I've caused, let alone the ones that he might have sent. At this point, you might be saying, hang on a minute, Philip. (laughs) I'm in a storm, and my storm isn't sent by God. And and you know what? My storm is not due to me. My, My storm is due to the rebellion, the sinfulness of other men, other women, mankind. That's what's caused my storm. God can still redeem those storms for good. God can still redeem those storms for good. I love the story early in the Bible, back in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. A guy called Joseph, some of you will have heard of. Joseph was... A bit of an arrogant toad, but nothing much more than that as a teenager. his brothers hated him, hated him so much that they trafficked him into human slavery. And he ended up in prison. At the end of Joseph's life, Genesis 50, he's speaking to his brothers. And he looks back across his life and all that God has done. And he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. He doesn't excuse the fact that human evil was intentionally done to him. But he's realized that God can redeem even those storms. Even the ones that are there as a result of somebody else. Do you see that? So sometimes God just sends storms. Sometimes we cause storms by our own rebellion. Sometimes others cause sin due to their own brokenness and rebellion. And every single time, God is capable of rescuing us from within it, of redeeming it, of using it for good. Are you in the middle of a storm at the moment? There's a few weather-beaten faces I can look at here who I know are in storms at the moment. Who are in storms I haven't experienced and may never experience. But, could it be that God is trying to get your attention? Is it possible that God is trying to get your attention in the middle of a storm? You might well be a Christian. Many of you are Christians here this morning. You're a follower of God, just like Jonah. And you, you know the stuff. You know the stuff. You, and you, you're living for God in many ways. You love him, enjoy him. He satisfies and brings, brings joy. Your discipleship with Jesus is, is clear. But on this one issue, on this one Nineveh, you're heading in the other direction. On this one thing, it's like, God, this one thing, I, I'm, I'm out. I'm over here. Sorry. Everything else, but that, that Nineveh, I don't know what it might be. Forgiveness, perhaps. Someone like God is calling you to forgive. That's the Nineveh. And you're like, I just can't. It's so hard. You don't know what that person's done or said or hasn't done or hasn't said. I, it's, forgiveness is just not going to happen. Tolerance, maybe. Avoidance, definitely. Forgiveness, no way. I'm on a boat to Tarshish. Or, or maybe it's saying sorry. It's, it's the reverse. Someone God needs you to apologise to. You Why know, well, it's, it's a mixed bag? And it's so complicated. It can be a Nineveh. That whole classic of money. Man, this is a financially generous church. But money can, all be, money can be a Nineveh for all of us. We can love God in so many ways, almost every way, except with radical, generous, Christ-like giving. Is that your Nineveh? Maybe it's a relationship. One that needs mending. One that needs investing in. One that needs bringing to an end, perhaps. Is there a Nineveh that you're running from? Maybe you're not a Christian. Now listen, let me be honest here. I don't know many people who have been on a calm, tranquil, flat sea and said, do you know what? I am a rebel. I am a rebel. I am a sinner. There is a a gap between God and I. That is a problem. Actually, the way I'm living my life is is not satisfying and I suspect it may never do. Yep, God, I'm in. I don't know many of those stories. Do you know what? I do know stories of people who have been in the middle of storms and have realised their rebel, their rebel, their rebelliousness. Who've realised the pursuit of God in their life? Can I gently suggest to you, if you're not a Christian and you're in a storm, it could very well be the loving attention and pursuit of the God of the universe. So, how do I respond to the storm? How do I respond to the storm? You might be saying, "Look how Jonah responds." <laughs> Verse 12. Jonah responds, "Pick me up and hurl me into the sea." Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah surrenders. He surrenders. He basically says, I, I, I disobeyed God. I've caught you guys up in all of this. I'm done. I surrender. Throw me into God's judgment. And let's see what happens. Jonah surrenders. And he has no idea of the grace and the mercy that awaits him. He has no idea of the love beneath the waves that he's about to encounter. You see, not only is God, hear me, not only is God too loving just to leave us drifting to Tarshish that he may send or use a storm, he's also too loving to leave you in the storm. He's a God who rescues rebels, he's a God that rescues rebels. Third and final point rebels need a rescuer. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't really know how that works, just to be honest. I read quite a few things this week. don't really know how the whole fish thing works. One bloke thought the fish was a metaphor for a pub called the Fish Tavern. And apparently that's what Jonah went to. There's all kinds of interesting things you can read about Jonah and the whale. I do know this. Jesus, who rose from death to life, held the Old Testament, every part of it, in very, very high regard. He quoted it consistently. He believed it utterly. And he both quoted and believed this exact passage, this exact event. Both the author of Jonah and Jesus Christ himself believed this whole thing to be a historical event. And when Jesus says something is true, that's good enough for me. The point is, our creator God does what he's able to do and sends a created, a creature, to rescue Jonah. That's the point, isn't it? There's a rescue of Jonah. The rebel needs a rescuer. Jonah casts himself into the sea and as he's sinking into oblivion, thinking it's all over, mercy and grace meet him. And the rescue that he needs comes in place. That's what Jonah needed ultimately. You see, he, what he didn't need was to stay in Joppa or Jerusalem in the Middle East and, and, and clench his fists and try really hard to love Ninevites. And, and maybe try really hard to walk towards Nineveh. What he, needed, what, he wasn't, what he needed wasn't to try and behave better or try harder. What he needed was an encounter with the grace of God. That's what I need if I'm going to love difficult people. Not to try really hard. Of course, there's space for effort and will and discipline. But ultimately, what I need to encounter consistently and daily is the grace of God. I don't think Jonah had encountered the grace of God for a long time. How do we access this? You see, for us, we live in a new covenant, as we were hearing before. A new set of promises that God has made to Christians through Christ that are absolutely impregnable and immovable. So we don't, unlike Jonah, we don't cast ourselves into God's judgment, hoping and wondering, do we? We do that with total security and confidence. How is that possible? It's because there's a second Jonah. There's a true and a better Jonah. There's one who was thrown into the real ocean of God's wrath and nothing caught him. He just sank. There is one who drowned for you. And not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Hebrews 12 tells me this. Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here's the point. Jesus drowned for rebels. Jesus drowned for rebels. Jesus was thrown into the ocean of God's wrath and judgment, fierce that it was. And nothing saved him. He sank all the way to the bottom to death itself. He was entombed for three days. And then like Jonah, three days later, he left his tomb to award every single thing that he had purchased on the cross. Every victory, every victory over sickness, over death, over sin that was purchased on the cross. He rose from his fish out of his tomb to award you the consequences and the results of that. There's a true, there's a better Jonah. That's why we don't cast ourselves on God this morning with hope, crossing our fingers. Maybe, I wonder, possibly he might rescue me. If you're in the middle of a storm, you cast yourself on God with total confidence. He always brings a rescue. He always redeems storms for good when you cast yourself upon him. Never ever think you do so crossing your fingers. It may be terrifying. For Jonah, it felt like suicide to throw himself into God. But the rescue came. The rescue came. God doesn't offer rebels a list of to-dos. He offers them. He offered me. <laughs> Magnificent grace and a spectacular rescue. See, whether you're a believer this morning who is ignoring God on something, on one miniver, or whether you're not a Christian, you're trying to build your life without God. The reality in some ways is the same. God in his mercy will pursue you, sometimes with a storm and always with a rescue. That's the nature of our gospel. Emma and the band, can I ask you to come and join me? I'm just going to enjoy singing a song of response to this Jesus, a true and better Jonah. Let me just move into that song of response by asking you if you hadn't had any more Some of these questions, again, I want you to consider how you're going to respond. I want you to consider how you're going to respond. What Nineveh are you running from? What Nineveh are you running from? Can I plead with you as a pastor, somebody who loves you? Can I plead with you to throw yourself on God now so you don't need a storm to wake you up like Jonah? What Nineveh are you running from? Secondly, are you in a storm? And if so, is God pursuing you in that storm? And I would plead with you again throw yourself on the grace of God, not in hope, but in total and utter confidence. So we stand. We're going to sing that song, You Alone Can Rescue. Fantastic lyrics. The song says, You Alone Can Rescue. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us, led us out of death. To you belongs the highest praise. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you drowned for me. God, I'm so grateful that you didn't just observe me in my rebellion. You intervened. You pursued me and you rescued me. What a gospel we have. Not an indifferent God, but a God who is so passionate and so loving that he'll do anything to draw us back to himself. Father, I pray, would you draw men and women back to you this morning. I pray for any who do know you, love you and believe in you, but are finding it so difficult to give that one Nineveh to you. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you give courage and confidence to throw themselves into your arms, knowing that a loving embrace welcomes them. I pray for any who, who don't love you and not following you. I pray you do a work in hearts that would cause a surrender like Jonah and for the first time ever to throw themselves into the arms of God knowing judgment is dealt with and grace and mercy awaits. We love you Jesus. We worship you. Amen.